Hi, and welcome to this BGSM podcast. My name is Michael Skowal Radliff from the Research Unit for General Practice in Aalborg. I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Dylan Morrissey from Queen Mary University of London and Barts Health NHS Trust. And also Dr. Christian Barton from the new Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Center at La Trobe University. So I want to start off by asking you, why do you think this gap exists between evidence and practice? You know, it's a really good question. And I guess the first thing we've got to consider is, is there a gap? And I, I think the evidence is pretty clear that the gap is, is definitely there. We see a big time lag between new findings and new research and, and equally between new clinical innovations and, and the proof that they, that they work or that they, that they have substance. And why is that gap there? Well, we've done a load of interviews with clinicians all around the world and we've asked them this question, probably over 100 interviews now, and the themes are pretty strong. Um, there's a lack of access, there's practical issues around um, physically getting hold of the information uh, there's lack of time, but equally there's perhaps a reluctance sometimes to to take new work and, and to, to put it into practice. It's difficult to do. And maybe that's something to do with how that work is presented and how the questions are asked and perhaps around the research methods. And in sports medicine, I think perhaps there's there's additional issues in that we kind of look at what happens with elite athletes and we look at that as being the gold standard. And of course, elite athletes are by definition a very select group. They're an N of one in a sea of thousands. And we don't do the classic group methods with those people. We can't. By definition, we can't do that. And yet we look at the people who work with elite athletes for guidance. And we look at what happens with those people. And we look at that as the epitome of best practice. And that's a difficult thing. That's a, that's a tension that we've, we've got to build in. So I think research is a difficult space to work in. It's at the boundary of what's known and what's not known. And that's difficult conceptually and it's, it's difficult to make that transfer. And we, Christian and I, held a, an event in London at the launch of um, a paper earlier this year, the patellofemoral pain paper that we'll go on to talk more about, I think. And what came through really clearly is that, that this is not specific to physiotherapy, it's not specific to sports medicine, it's not specific to the medical field in general, that what we see in all areas is a, is a lag between innovation and adoption. And the people perhaps that even we're talking to in this podcast are hopefully the early adopters um, rather than the, the rump who come along later. And what we've got to do is take full advantage of all the opportunities that modern technology and information technology particularly offer in order to, to bridge these gaps and, and make this transfer much faster. Because at the end of the day, better evidence should mean better outcomes for patients. Equally, better understanding of what clinicians are generating in a less formal way in the way, formal way in terms of evidence and in terms of innovation needs to get into research faster. So I see this as very much a, a two-way um, problem with two-way solutions. And 
with modern technology possibly at the heart of making making the situation better yeah i think it's some good great points still and um i see patients every day and one of the things that comes across very clearly is some of them receiving evidence-based treatment um many of them though are, are not receiving evidence-based treatment um which is unfortunate considering there's a lot of great research out there there's a lot of great uh groups of researchers around the world with really good endeavors and, and producing great information for us all and i think the issue around accessibility which you mentioned at the beginning is probably the the biggest thing and part of that accessibility issue is that the information is presented generally in a scientific journal format and we don't have a lot of formats beyond that so for a clinician who's busy seeing a lot of patients um, who maybe might have a couple of hours a week to, to catch up on research and catch up on current evidence, for them to try and digest scientific journal papers or even a really good systematic review takes quite a lot of time. And I think when you mention about, I guess, the information technologies we have available, using those to try and create more digestible information, so thinking about infographics and thinking about so even simple podcasts, which I know BJSM does very well, those types of things are, are really great ways of, of, I guess, addressing some of those things. Um, and probably the other thing around the research, the two-way that Dylan's talking about, I think that's hugely important. One of the common themes with the research that we've done, which Dylan's mentioned with lots of clinicians around the world, is the external applicability of the research that's often done is really lacking and I think sometimes that's through an absence of consultation with clinicians or lack of clinicians involved in, in the research and I think research groups I'd strongly encourage probably need to have more steering committees etc and consultation with clinicians when they're designing their research trials. Equally to that though it's probably also con consulting patients. We seem to have this dictatorship with clinical practice where we kind of tell the patients what is required and what are the important research questions and that's what we guide. But if I think if we can consult patients and have them as steering committees and if we take patellofemoral pain, for example, we might get a group of 20 patients together and talk to them about well, what are the important research questions that we should be asking and should be addressing. And I think that will help us to have far more translatable research evidence and knowledge because it's going to hopefully help us address some of the questions that are important to them. Yeah, look, Christian, that's a great point about patients, and it's good to see we're very much on the on the same same uh, wavelength here. So, involving clinicians in research and the clinicians being researchers and researchers being clinicians is absolutely the way forward. And involving patients makes it all so much more real. Um, and there's great resources out there for researchers in terms of patient and participant involvement or PPI. Um, there's a great website for the NIHR, the Involve website, which gives such clear guidance. And as, as we all know, at the end of the day, we've got to take this research and make it real with the patient in front of us. And involving patients, not just in a sort of feedback mechanism for what we do or plan or found, but equally um, right from the design process and the choosing the topics has got to make things more real, more valid um, through, throughout that research process. And equally, they can help us disseminate. Um, just as we talk about clinicians and researchers needing to talk about the same language, maybe we need to have a, a language that goes very um, comfortably with, with what patients can understand who don't have perhaps the specialist knowledge, but certainly 
have a very detailed knowledge of their condition from a from a lived experience perspective. So I know that you have both been uh, very active in in trying to almost develop a new type of systematic reviews where you try to make them uh, less dry and also avoid having to conclude that more research is needed before we can draw any firm conclusions. Can you try to expand a bit more about what you actually did with the systematic reviews and how you integrate this with expert knowledge? Yeah, I'll, so when I started at Queen Mary, I'll tip my hat off to Dylan because he was the one who inspired me to, to get involved with all of this. I was a quantitative researcher and I'd published quite a few systematic reviews before. Most of them were exactly what Dylan said, quite dry and didn't really tell us a lot. And he opened my eyes to this qualitative research. And in terms of engaging the experts, I guess the, the first bits of research I picked up was some uh, preliminary and, and more comprehensive stuff that the group Dylan had put together had already done in various conditions. And he handed me some qualitative data on patellofemoral pain. And I, I read it and I looked at clinical reasoning from some experienced clinicians around the London area. And the clear thing that kept coming across to me is that they didn't always understand the evidence. They didn't always know how to apply the evidence. And there was lots of the barriers which we've spoke about. So we have a conference every two years in patellofemoral pain and we get together a lot of international experts. A lot of these guys are both in clinical practice and research. So well, I decided that, and we decided together that probably there's a great cohort to talk to because they know the evidence, but they also should know how to apply it very well and bring it to life. So what we did is we, instead of interviewing experienced clinicians, is we took it to the next step and we defined what we thought an international expert was. And we went out and we interviewed these guys and talked to them around their clinical reasoning. And I think that information it provides is, is quite amazing because you get so much more um, I guess, insight into to how we can apply some of the evidence to, to practice, but also the emerging topics coming out, so things that maybe don't have a lot of evidence behind them but are, are quite innovative and, and are, are going to be out there in terms of evidence base down the track come through. So if we talk about patellofemoral pain, for example, we start to get a lot of information about uh, gait retraining that maybe isn't out there yet in terms of RCTs. We also get lots of information about um, what type of exercises we should be applying and when and how we should be applying them. If we talk about something like patient education, which is a passion of both mine and yours, Michael, and obviously Dylan's as well, but particularly in patellofemoral pain, we look at that and there's no published trials looking at patient education as, as an isolated intervention or to guide us with that. But what clearly comes out from when we interview these experts is the importance of that. But more importantly, it's not just the importance of it, but it's the practicality of how we can apply it and what we should be looking at. So I think, yeah, that expert idea and put all that together in a mixed methods design um, in combination with our dry systematic reviews and suddenly our dry systematic reviews aren't so dry anymore. They've, they've actually become an interesting read for people. They actually produced 10 combined um, sort of semi-systematic reviews, if you like, with expert interviews and, and used them with a, a major healthcare provider in the UK. And they'd gone down a storm with clinicians. But could we get them published? Could we get them to the degree of rigor that we needed? No, we couldn't. And that was for two reasons. One, we just needed to do it a bit better and work out how to put these two apparently odd bedfellows together. But equally, um, how could we really make the qualitative talk to the quantitative and vice versa.
amongst the group, but equally got to pay some credit to some great reviewers who really pushed us and pushed us and pushed us. And, and we started that process from a very mechanistic perspective in that we wanted to fill the gaps that we knew that would exist in the evidence base. But what we suddenly got when you read these interviews with whether it was local experts or world experts, the whole the whole evidence base came to life because you had people who were really working with this and living with this and engaging with these topics on a on a day-to-day basis at a really deep level and a really applied level, giving you the, the clinical reasoning, uh, you the sort of the color, put the lights on. And and from my perspective, that was really exciting and communicating that to the journals was really, really hard. It was really frustrating. Um, but I think we've kind of got a method now where we can do this and, and we've got some, some more projects underway, which will hopefully add a great deal to, to our evidence base as, as we go forward. So after you've um, developed this new type of systematic reviews where you combine with expert opinion and uh, ideas and so on, I know that on especially Twitter and social media, these have been... Uh, Uh, quite discussed and um, I think it's it's one of the most uh, tweeted stories in 2015 your last systematic review um, what has the feedback been from the clinicians you've spoken to can they uh, easily understand the systematic reviews can they easily uh, apply the findings yeah I think um, well, what feedback I've received from clinicians I guess is they've they've really enjoyed reading the paper because it does come to life and it is something that they can utilize in clinic. Um, some of the feedback we get was interesting around obviously people not agreeing with evidence still, um, which is always fascinating and interesting. So things like patellotaping remains controversial amongst some clinicians. Um, and I think probably the, the biggest limitation that um, is highlighted is that, okay, this is a, a guide and, and what we did as part of the Um, part of the study which we'll present in Denmark is we we created a, a treatment guide which essentially is, is one table on an A4 page um, but it's only a guide it doesn't actually bring that to life and it doesn't actually describe practically how to apply each of those components so there is still a lot of work to be done in terms of translating that into to clinical practice and what we're all wrestling with now, I guess, is how best to, to bring that forward and, and bring it further into clinical practice. But from a standpoint of considerations for treatment, I think it provides a very good good foundation about these are the, the interventions that you should be considering. And that's generally what clinicians, I guess, quite enjoy about reading the paper. It gives them some insight in, into that. You have both been... Um... Great example of, of how a great example of how researchers can actively help facilitate this process. But Dylan, as you mentioned previously, it's a it's a two way road. How do you see clinicians being able to to help facilitate this as well? That's a really good question, and I think it's an under under resourced area. So, and it's an underdeveloped method and i think maybe what we're seeing with social media for example is people taking that into their own hands so to take a little step back before going forward um i looked at the alt metrics so the the impact if you like the wider impact of um papers and i looked at two papers one was our first paper that used the mixed methods on achilles tendinopathy and the second was the patellofemoral pain paper 
And look, the Achilles tendon paper, we got that out there. It was the same mixed method. It wasn't quite as refined as the patellofemoral pain paper, but we just put that out there in a fantastic journal. Um, and it's kind of done well, but the altmetrics, so the impact and the reach of that paper is nothing, nothing like the patellofemoral pain paper. Nothing like it. Um, and maybe that reflects the fact that patellofemoral pain is a more common condition, but I think it's much more likely that the work that we did around the paper on Twitter, on social media, having a launch event, getting people talking about it, um, and putting it, therefore, in the hands of clinicians. We had 100-odd people come to an event in London. There was another event in Denmark. Uh, there was a, a little bit of a Twitter storm around it. Um, you know, it was in the British Journal of Sports Medicine who are um, pushing um, the social media and therefore the impact of their work really actively and expertly. And the old metrics are completely different. And I think what we did was we we gave the message in multiple ways so that um, people could access it in multiple ways and they could take it into their own hands. And look, the other bit here is it was open access for a while. That makes a big difference. People can get this paper in their hands, in their in a PDF, mm -hmm. they can share it, they can talk about it. And the, the last thing I would say is that one of the ways of making systematic reviews, or whether it's mixed methods or not, one of the ways of making systematic reviews have much more impact is to do something extra with them. What can you do with all that work? Apart from synthesizing and critiquing, what else can you do? And as Christian said, we produced a treatment guide, a simple tabulated treatment guide. Um, and it was a reviewer who pushed us really hard in some respects to be really clear in that what was level one evidence and what was clinical reasoning. Um, so that's clearly differentiated within that guide. But that's something that's a real takeaway. And I think all systematic reviewers should just be looking for that little bit extra of what they can do with a systematic review to, to really translate it, whether it's into clinical guidelines or some kind of added value. Um, and, and that's probably the bit that clinicians are taking away. And yet, it's not enough. You know, you guys um, have produced a, a lovely leaflet. There's further work to be done on still taking that um, black on white paper resource and making it a real three-dimensional lived experience for clinicians, whether that's through courses or other forms of online media and so on for the, for the wider reach. There's still work to be done. There's still, still a gap that it still doesn't quite bridge. Yeah, I think that's a key point, Dylan, is there's still, yeah, a lot, a lot to be done. I think this is starting to make inroads into it. Um, and I think we're still learning as we go with these researchers. I think what we've produced with the mixed methods is probably something that I'm extremely proud of, um, that paper. But it's, yeah, creating those additional resources to help. And you mentioned about the patient education, which Michael and I have been working on. We've created a patient education leaflet, for example, to try and put this information into a different format, which is much easier for patients to digest, which is also part of that knowledge translation. But even that, when we, we look at that, the, the leaflet we've created probably may not be that useful for adolescents. I know clinically that that tends to be the case when I talk to them. And the other thing is, you mentioned information technologies earlier, we've got so many different uh, capabilities and, and different forums and 
ways we can create these resources to educate both patients and clinicians. And I think that's what we've got to got to move forward and, and bring it to life a little bit further. I think it's woken it up and in terms of knowledge translation and now we've got to really bring it to life. And hopefully those who do get along to the Danish conference will bring a little bit more of that to life in terms of um, what the guide means and how we can apply it clinically. But we also need to make that far more accessible. I assume we'll get quite a few hundred people to the conference, but there's thousands and thousands of clinicians around the world who need access to, to more and more of this information. And that's our challenge going forward. So do you have any um, like suggestions for basic clinicians on simple ways that they can keep uh, up to date with all this new published research? There are some, some great um, blogs out there which people can, can follow, I guess. The key thing is is looking at your blog and looking at the credibility of who's writing these blogs sometimes and making sure that you're happy and comfortable that they know how to synthesize the evidence, but that can be a nice, efficient way of, of getting getting some information. I guess other things, we've mentioned Twitter before, and I think Twitter can be fantastic. Some people get on Twitter and they get very upset by certain things and they get in these heated debates, and I think people lose sleep over Twitter at times. But I think... If you can follow a few people, and BJSM is a, a great example of, of something you can follow and get some nice, easily digestible information. Um, there's other other people you can follow out there, and that gives you little snippets of information, and you can stay up to date. You can follow various hashtags. Um, so, for example, if you're interested in patellofemoral pain, we had the recent retreat in Manchester, and there was a hashtag for that, which was um, PFP Manchester or PFP Retreat. I can't remember, but following hashtags, etc., on those can be quite a useful way of keeping up to date with, with various forms of literature. Um, I'm sure Dylan's got many other things you can add into that as well. Yeah, well, we, we've spent a long time agreeing, Christian, and so I'm going to have to disagree on this one. I'm not a big fan of blogs um, because I, I think it's um, it's kind of secondhand. And I, I, th I think there's a, a little bit of a problem that could just be brushed away is that Academic clinicians like sometimes to to put things in in difficult language, um, and that's got to be knocked to one side, really. And I think every every single um, clinician who works in sports and exercise medicine has more than enough education and more than enough smarts to interpret the evidence for their own um, for their own client population, and they should go straight to source. They should go to systematic reviews, and they should go to the to the to the source data, uh, or the source um, papers, and just spend some time. There's a heap of evidence out there that the single biggest factor in talented people um, that that leads to um, knowledge and deep knowledge and and, and real um, learning is is engagement. So people just need to make some time. And if I go back to my um, my clinical home at Barts Health, we have two and a half thousand referrals a month for musculoskeletal problems just into physiotherapy. That adds up to about four and a half thousand across the MSK specialities. And what we've what what works well when things are going really well, which sometimes they are, they're not always. But what works really well is when when we have structures within that setup to make sure that people are talking about evidence. And people are engaging with evidence, whether that's through um, in-service education, whether that's through journal clubs, whether that's through um, patient and um, problem problem patient sessions, and so on. Making sure that you build some element of evidence in there 
and it becomes habit. And that habit is a powerful, powerful habit, and it's a powerful um, channel between what's happening in that big wide world and what's happening in your immediate clinical care context. So I think social media has got a huge role to play. I'm a big fan of, uh, of Twitter, but you've got to keep a little bit of a judgmental eye. But then that's the same for published research. You've got to keep a judgmental eye, a, a, a critical and skeptical, but not a cynical eye. <laughs> um, and look, you know, not everything that's published is, is, is going to be gold, but you can pretty quickly, with a bit of engagement and a bit of structure and a bit of habit, a bit of practice, you can learn pretty quickly to discern what looks credible and, and what is useful and, and, you know, winnow that out and pick, pick the, the wheat from the chaff. And, and that's what I would suggest to people is just to engage in a structural way, make the habit. Thanks for, um, for a great discussion. And, um, I really look forward welcoming you to the Danish sports medicine conference where you will have more time and also visuals so you can can demonstrate some of the suggestions that you uh, you make. I hope all the listeners enjoyed this talk with Dr. Christian Bartson and Dylan Morrissey. Thanks.